It is a blessing to be back with you. Last week I had to do this by myself because daily I had actually already left by the time I started to preach. And my kids who, I know y'all think they're just so eager to hear me preach, they had left by the time I began to preach. And I was in here on a Saturday morning preaching because of the weather, but also because of COVID. And uh, I am grateful that my symptoms were minimal. Actually, I had... um, Uh, congestion and I lost my voice. I will say I'm a little bit disappointed because we had a lady in our church in, uh, I'm sorry, in Pennsylvania, who when she had chemo, she lost all her hair. And when it came back, it was, it had been all straight and basically uh, thin. And when it came back, it was thick and curly. And there's a part of me, when I lost my voice, I thought maybe when it comes back, I'll sound like Barry White. Well, that didn't happen, and it's not all the way back yet, but I feel pretty confident that didn't happen. So uh, that being said, I am grateful that my symptoms were not worse, and there are others that are going through it right now, so thank you for your grace toward them as they continue to go through that as well. Many years ago, I had the privilege of serving alongside a fellow pastor on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota, working with the Lakota Sioux Indians. He had been there for over 25 years at that point, and his long-term stability in that region that he brought by simply being an active part of the ministry there made an incredible impact on that reservation. He and his wife had faithfully lived out the truth of the gospel to a people who were at first not all that interested in what he had to offer. But over the years, the people saw someone who genuinely loved them in about every way possible. If my memory serves me correctly, they had served as foster parents to more than 50 Native American children and adopted several other children. In addition, he ran a weekly bus ministry where he would pick up about 50 kids, drive to an open field, tell them about Jesus, and then give them a single piece of candy. And every Sunday, that bus would be packed because the kids knew they had someone who genuinely loved them. In all of these things, he preached the truth faithfully, and he saw lives that were changed. Yet in the midst of these changed lives, there was also a sense of frustration and confusion. The faith of these new believers was what I would call muddy. It wasn't quite as clear as we would hope. Often when an individual surrenders their lives to Christ, they tend to bring with them incredible baggage that can muddy the waters of our faith. In their case, many of the ritualistic practices associated with their heritage continued to persist. Although Pastor Don preached against the use of things like totem poles and dream catchers, as well as vision quest experiences where they would pray to various gods of nature and expose their minds to different occultic influences. Although he preached against these things, he found that many of these new believers, although they hung to Christ, they also hung on to many of the things that were a part of their past. So what you'd end up with was a people with one foot firmly planted in Christianity while the other was still hanging on to the unhealthy 
outside influences of the past. But this is not unique to the Native American culture. We all bring baggage that can muddy the waters of our faith. And sometimes it's cultural. Sometimes there are practices that we've always viewed as acceptable, but they shouldn't be. Sometimes it's just an ingrained mindset. For example, I spoke with a construction worker this week who had experienced a complete lifestyle makeover when he came to Christ. He shared that alcohol and drug abuse are rampant within his line of work. In addition, he is higher up in leadership and his work often included going out for drinks and fancy dinners with potential high-end clients in hopes of landing a big job. But the alcohol was destroying his life. Upon finding Christ, he shared that he tried to merge the two lifestyles together. He tried to live for Christ every day, but then he would still participate in the after-hours dinners that didn't always honor the Lord. Unfortunately, it would eventually catch up with him, and he would have to choose which world he would live in. Praise the Lord that he chose the world of Christian living, but it demonstrates so well what many new believers struggle with today. They want to serve God, but they have all this other stuff that muddy the waters of their faith. Well, this morning, I want us to look at a church that could very well relate with my friend, as well as those who are coming to Christ through my friend's ministry in South Dakota. We're talking about a people who genuinely had the desire to follow Christ and to serve him well, yet they had some powerful influences that constantly pulled at them. I'm talking about the church at Thyatira. And their letter is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 29. While you turn there, let me give you some background information on Thyatira. Thyatira was located about 35 miles southeast of Pergamum. It was a very small city, especially compared to the other cities that we have looked at as we've gone through this series already. But it was also a busy commercial center. It was on a major route of the Roman Empire. And because of this, there were many trade unions that had settled in this city. Everyone who worked there was a member of one or more of the trade unions. There were carpenters, dyers, sellers of goods, tent makers, all kinds of examples of these trade unions. In the church at Philippi, which the apostle Paul began, there was a woman named Lydia. Some of you probably remember her. She was a seller of purple. And if you go back to the book of Acts, it tells us that she was from Thyatira. You see, it was difficult to make a living as a Christian in Thyatira without also belonging to one of these trade unions. This is absolutely a factor which will bear upon the interpretation of the letter as we look at it. Our Lord's first words of the church indicate both judgment and commendation. This is what he says. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now, because this is actually a slightly longer letter, I'm going to break this passage up into sections as we read today. Before we look at the church, there are a couple of things that I want you to take notice of this morning. First, I want to remind you that of what we looked at last Sunday. In the letter to Pergamum, Jesus was described as one with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. I know that I preached it on Saturday, but if you watched it online, you saw it on Sunday. He had a double-edged sword that was coming out of his mouth. In that, we talked about the fact that Jesus, by the words of his mouth, was able to penetrate deep below the surface of humanity. He could see through the facades that we so often put up. Well, as we hear from the Son of God in this letter, we get a somewhat similar message. It's described in a different way, but it's the same idea. He's described as having eyes like blazing fire, which again suggests that he can see beyond the surface. He knows what is actually going on in our hearts. You know, so often it's easy for us to give the appearance to the rest of the world that everything is good, that my life is what it ought to be because I dress nice on Sunday and I put a smile on and I'm really good at talking to people and everybody looks and they think that's what it is to be a child of God. But Jesus looks beyond the surface and he knows what is going on in our hearts. In addition, the image of feet fitted like bronze indicates that he is coming to trample something and that he is prepared for the task. It's like going out last weekend to play in the snow while you're wearing your Crocs. You're not going to be out there very long because you're really not prepared for the experience. But if you're wearing the right boots, you're good. Romans 16, 20 tells us that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. Well, in this case, Jesus is coming to trample sin. And he's coming to punish what has dishonored his name. And he's got the right shoes on for the job. It's worth noting that there is both good and bad that needs to be addressed in this particular church. In fact, it has been said that within this apparently vibrant church, there was also more corruption than what is found in any of the six churches. Thus, the eyes like the blazing fire and the burnished bronze feet would be necessary. He had to be able to look deeper and to address what was really taking place. And there were definitely some great things that were going on in this particular church. The Lord tells us what they are. He says, I know your deeds or your works. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and your perseverance. Now, these are all connected to each other. They're related in some way. Think about it. Love leads to service. Faith ought to lead to perseverance. If you love God, you will serve his people. You can't help it. It's the sign that you love, that you are willing to serve. They they go hand in hand with each other. 
I had a pastor many years ago who would often say, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And the idea was that if you really care, it'll be evident in the way you serve. Your actions matter. And if you have a faith that will persevere, then you will understand that God is in control and things will work out according to his purpose. So our faith and our perseverance, again, are very connected. You work, you keep at your work, you don't quit. So here was a church that had many people that loved God and they served his people. They had faith in his word and they persevered. They helped many, they kept it up. As others then got involved, the church grew, so the deeds or the works of the church were far more when this letter was written than it was at the beginning. Let me just take a moment and just say that sometimes as I read the seven letters of the seven churches, I can very easily connect to the modern day church through it. And this would be one of those. Because the reality is, this is a church that I would look at and say is vibrant. We're trying to make a difference in the world. We care about people. We're serving. I loved what Colby had to share this morning. That we've got another church in the community and we're going to partner with them to be able to help meet practical needs in these refugees' lives, the ones that are coming from Afghanistan. And we're going to be a part of that process. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to do. But the reality is, Sometimes a church can look really healthy on the outside, but it's not as healthy when you dig deeper. What I described to you is how a church grows. If we had been present in Thyatira, we would likely have been very much impressed by the church. It was busy, bustling. It was an active church with some wonderful people in it who obviously manifested love and faith. They showed it in the way they lived lived their lives. Their concern and their care for others was evident. It must have seemed a very attractive church, but now the blazing eyes and the burning feet go into action. As they do, we see not just a church that appears vibrant, we also see there is a venomous cancer that existed within that church. Look as we begin to learn deeper facts about the church, beginning in verse 20 says, nevertheless, it's not a good thing when the Lord's been complimenting you. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will also strike her children dead. And the passage will go on and we'll we'll connect with what the rest of this is saying. Evidently, there was in this church at Thyatira a woman who was a very dominant leader. Jesus names her Jezebel, but it's unlikely that that was her real name. Instead, she is likely named according to her character. That's why Jesus often renames people in the gospel. 
he chooses the name in this situation of the most evil woman in the Old Testament. If someone calls you Jezebel, it's not a compliment. The Old Testament Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon, a town in what is now modern day Lebanon. She was the wife of evil King Ahab of Israel in the Northern Kingdom. And she is particularly noted as having made the worship of a false god, Baal, popular in Israel. Baal was a fertility god and his worship involved immoral and sexual practices. There were temple prostitutes, both male and female, associated with the worship of Baal. It was Jezebel who spread this degraded worship widely among the nine and a half tribes of Israel until it became one of the most popular religions of the day. In fact, she personally supported over 800 prophets of Baal who ate at her table. And following Elijah's encounter with the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, when he called down fire from heaven, consuming the sacrifice intended for the Lord, and then had the false prophets killed, Jezebel sought to have this man of God killed. This mighty man of God had faced off with 450 false prophets. But when Jezebel got after him, he ran for his life. She was someone to be feared. She was also the one who murdered the neighbor, Naboth, because her husband wanted his vineyard. She was a ruthless, immoral seducer of the people. And that is why Jesus selects her name for this dominant woman at Thyatira. According to the prophecy in the Old Testament, Jezebel ended her days by being thrown from her palace window in the courtyard where the dogs came and then ate her body and licked up her blood. It was a brutal ending to a life that had not been well lived. This Jezebel in Thyatira called herself a prophet or a prophetess. There's nothing wrong with that in itself. Her gender is not the problem. It was her teaching. There were other female prophets in the Bible. The Old Testament lists a number of them who were well-respected in Israel. In the book of Acts, we are told that Philip the evangelist, the one who preached throughout the land of Palestine, that he had four daughters who were prophetesses and who had prophesied within the church. But the trouble with Jezebel is not that she was a female prophet. It was that what she prophesied was false. Jesus points out what her teaching was. She taught that it was all right for Christians to indulge in sexual immorality and in adultery. And here's the link to the trade unions of Thyatira. And before I get into this, let me just say that not all unions are bad. When I lived in the Philadelphia area, we found that many of our people were part of unions simply because those unions sought to protect workers' rights. Sure, there were some people who will abuse those benefits, and some unions are actually detrimental to the workplace. But generally, unions are what you would call amoral. They're neither good or bad. It's what you do with them. But in order for 
an individual to work in these particular unions in Thyatira, which constituted the entire business of the city, Christians had to join a union or guild made up of pagans for the most part. History shows that the meetings of these unions, these guilds, were often devoted to licentious debaucheries, which were connected with the worship of erotic idols of the Greek world. Let me quote from the British Bible scholar, William Barclay. He said, these guilds met frequently and they met for a common meal. Such a meal was at least in part a religious ceremony. It would probably meet in a heathen temple and it would certainly begin with a libation to the gods. And the meal itself would largely consist of meat offered to idols. The official position of the church meant that a Christian could not attend such a meal. This was the problem the Thyatiran Christians faced. In order to make a living, they had to be a part of the union. You're not going to get a job. Nobody's going to work with you unless you're a part of this union. But to attend the union was to become involved or at least pressured to become involved with the worship of idols and with all kinds of immoral behavior. So they had to make a choice. It was difficult to live in Thyatira for this very reason. But apparently, whomever this Jezebel was had begun to teach among the Christians that it was okay for them to go along with the requirements of the guild. They needed to submit to the pressures of the world around in order to make a living and that God would understand and he would overlook the compromise. Can you picture it? Using the words of scripture, but of course taking it out of context. Revelation 2.24 says, you know the deep things that work here. You know that according to 1 Corinthians 8.4, idols are nothing. And you know that according to 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for you. So go to the feast, eat, drink, be merry. You have to make a living, don't you? No wonder the Lord called this false prophetess at Thyatira by the derogatory name Jezebel. It's okay if you compromise. The Lord's going to understand. It's, everything's all right. Now, before I get into the corporate application of this, let me address the individual. I've had individuals who were in a position where they felt like they had to choose between faithfully serving the Lord and doing or taking a job that might contradict their Christian faith. And while I understand the need to make ends meet, there is a fundamental flaw within the reasoning that goes on in these cases. You see, just as God has given you job opportunities, he'll provide if you choose to faithfully follow him. In other words, you don't have to compromise in order to have your needs met. God's the one who gave you the job opportunities to begin with. He will provide for your every need. And so often what we've done is we've justified why it's okay for us to compromise and God will understand. But the issue here is that God has already said, no, you don't compromise. You don't allow such sin 
to take root in your life. Now, unfortunately, there is also a corporate application here, as there are many churches today that have allowed worldly standards to dictate our standards. The things that one generation recognized as sin have become acceptable within the church simply because society has determined that it should be. Now all forms of sexual immorality and perversion, all forms of substance abuse, all forms of entertainment have become a normal part of the lives within the church. But notice that the Lord holds the church responsible. It's not just this woman Jezebel. His accusation to them is you tolerate this woman Jezebel. This is a problem that the church must face. We cannot compromise just because people who can talk really well have made it sound like it's okay. And unfortunately, there are many preachers out there who have been very much like this Jezebel. And they have made compromise an acceptable thing. But God has said, no, it is not. Notice that in the letters of the church of Pergamum last week that I shared with you and to the church of Thyatira, the Lord links sexual immorality with idolatry. We may find that a little bit strange, but actually one inevitably will lead to the other. The reason is this. Any type of sex outside of marriage is a clear-cut violation of specific laws of God. Anyone who reads the Bible can see very clearly that God forbids these activities. It is wrong for believers to indulge in sexual immorality of any sort, even though you may be able to justify it in your mind. When one does, he or she has deliberately violated the authority of God. Therefore, in practice, if not in profession, God is no longer their God. It is impossible to miss the condemnation of the Bible in these respects. Now, you might not like what I'm about to say, but listen with an open heart. If people deliberately reject the Lord's authority, he is no longer their God. If he were truly their God, then they would obey him. The result is they must find another God for it is impossible for the human spirit to live without something to live for. That is what a God is. Whatever you're living for, whatever makes life worthwhile to you, that becomes your God. It may be the God of pleasure, even sexual pleasure. It may be the God of wealth. It may be the God of power, a lust for power and ambition. It may be the search for fame point that is being made here is that wherever you work, that is the place of greatest temptation in this regard. Right here this morning, there are businessmen, businesswomen, dentists, teachers, professional people, chefs, secretaries, various laborers in the marketplace, all kinds of people who work and give themselves daily. It is right where you work 
that you will be under pressure to compromise most and to go along with the standards of the world among us. Can you see how the waters of our faith can become very muddy? We bring in what we know. We bring in what our culture tries to force on us. But when it comes down to it, God has called us to be set apart. And the Spirit of God, alive in us, gives us the power to be changed. We don't have to have that muddy water to be made new. In other words, our faith doesn't have to be muddy. We can and we must be pure, set apart as representatives of a holy God. Surely the Apostle Paul brought all his education and his righteous pursuits with him, but he was transformed by his Damascus Road experience. Peter was a loud and boisterous fisherman who often put his foot in his mouth, yet he would be transformed into the rock on which the church would be built. The point is, the water doesn't have to be muddy. You can be changed. In fact, when we allow areas of compromise to muddy the water, there are always consequences. In our passage, I want you to note three groups of people who suffer due to compromise. The first is Jezebel. As a minister of the gospel, I do believe that ministers should be held to a higher standard. James 3.1 supports that, saying, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And when one fails morally, it hurts us all. It bothers me every time a news report comes out regarding a minister who has failed to uphold the high moral standards of the Christian faith. And as such... I do anticipate that God's judgment will one day fall very heavily upon each one. But for Jezebel, a prophetess, the judgment is intriguing. First, the passage notes that the Lord has already given her the opportunity to repent, yet she has refused. I suggest that even for the minister who has failed, there is grace. God would much rather grant grace than wrath. However, there's a point that will come where God will say no more. That apparently has come for Jezebel. So her punishment is both sad and ironic. She's promoted a lifestyle that involves sexual immorality, likely in a bed. And the punishment will be that she will lie on a bed but not a bed of roses or a, a plush mattress. She will lie on a bed of suffering and pain. Perhaps this is a physical suffering or maybe the suffering where you look back and think to yourself, what have I done in misleading so many people? Again, as a minister of the gospel, I never want to be in her shoes. The second group that will pay the price of compromise are those who have followed her false teaching. They've committed adultery with her. And maybe that seems a little bit unfair. I mean, they're just following the teachings of their leader. But they are not absent of responsibility here. 
Too many of us have taken what the pastor said and we chose to build our faith around that alone. And while I appreciate your faith in me, the reality is that such a choice is very dangerous. We ought to be grateful for the word that is brought through our ministers, but that does not absolve us from the responsibility to constantly pour ourselves into the actual word of God. You have your Bibles, make good use of them. Too many in the church have been misled because they were content to let someone else do all of their study for them. Get off of your spiritual behinds and find out what the word of God says for yourself. When you stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, you will be held accountable and you won't be able to blame the preacher. My job is to help you along the way, not to do everything for you spiritually. Now, the final group to suffer due to compromise sounds even more difficult to accept. The passage says that I will strike her children dead. In theory, this could deal with actual children, similar to the child that dies after the sexual sin of David and Bathsheba. But a more likely application here relates to those of a future generation that will take what this generation has done and they will make it even worse. Sin never happens in a vacuum. In other words, your areas of compromise will impact other people. I said it earlier, but things that were once wrong slowly become more and more acceptable until they are normal and even expected. Imagine how these areas of compromise would grow in the generation to come. Now imagine the consequences that would follow. I suggest that these kids are victims of another person's compromise, yet they will still be held accountable. That is, unless they repent. Now I don't have time to cover every aspect of this, but I also want you to fully understand the purpose of God's judgment and accountability. Talked about it in previous weeks as God is not content with us staying in our sin. Instead, he longs that we be changed. If we have to suffer for a little bit, simply so that we can get back to where we need to be, then so be it. Let's become the church that God intended for us to be. The one that will be empowered to change the world. I'm going to tell you, I still got a lot to share. I'm sorry. I didn't get to preach a full sermon last week, so I'm going to make up for it a little bit here. Certainly there was a venomous cancer within the church at Thyatira, but there was still hope. In fact, I also want you to see that there was a virtuous challenge that was being extended to them. Verses 24 and 25 says this, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. The eyes blazing with fire can see that it's not all bad. There's some good things happening here. There are those who have not compromised, not held to Jezebel's teachings, learning the so-called deep secrets. What this tells me is that you don't have to live compromised just because everybody else does. You can stand out. 
You can live above the standards of others, even if you're the only one who is doing so. There are two great examples of this in the Old Testament. One is Noah. Remember that he lived in a time where nobody was righteous except for him and his sons. As such, when God judged humanity with a great flood, they were spared. Know that humanity would have ceased to exist if not for one who chose to live to a different standard. The other example comes from a man named Lot. He was the nephew of Abraham, and he was the only righteous man in all of Sodom. Thus, when the city was destroyed, he alone was rescued. But even Noah and Lot are a great case study for us. You see, both of them, following their deliverance experiences, fall into temptation and compromise. Noah becomes drunk in his tent and ends up cursing one of his sons. Lot ends up in a sexual relationship with his very own daughters. The point is that you can never let your guard down. As I shared last week in Genesis 4-7, the Lord warns Cain that sin is crouching at your door, which means you're always vulnerable. So never let your guard down. Yes, you're doing great. You haven't given in to the teachings of Jezebel. You're not falling into the same traps that everybody else is. But stay the course. Be careful when you think you're standing strong. Those will be the times that Satan will try to attack. There's also something kind of cool about what Jesus says to the church at Thyatira here. He says, I'm not going to put something extra on you. Just keep up the good work. It's not that God is calling you to do something new. He's just calling you to do what he's already called you to do. But do it faithfully. Finally, we see one last thing, and I'll make this quick. God is calling us to victory. Listen to verses 26 through 28. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule over them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. I mentioned earlier that we ought to be the kind of church that can change the world. Well, the promised reward here is we'll even have authority over the rest of the world and they'll have to listen. Can you imagine Christians with authority over the nations? The rest of the world will respond in obedience. As a parent, I just want my kids to obey me. You're telling me the whole rest of the world's going to obey as well? The image of a morning star is one of beauty. In the middle of the darkest night, there is hope when you see that morning star. For in it, you know that there is a time coming very soon that light will drown out the darkness. And that is the promise that God has made to those who are victorious. Let me challenge you as a church today. Let me challenge you as individuals today. If nobody else will pursue God with all of their heart, you be the one. You be the one that says, I'm not going to compromise in any way, regardless of what it costs me. Things may be difficult. There may be dark days. But the Lord has promised the morning star. There will come a day that light will drown out the darkness 
and we will walk in victory and know an incredible peace and know that his reward is for us. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we are grateful for your truth. We're grateful for your grace. Lord, too many of us have allowed compromise to come in. We've not been as faithful. We've justified in our minds why we don't have to be. But the truth is, we do have to be. You expect it of us. Father, I pray right now that you would help us to be the people that you called us to be. Help us to be faithful. Help us to never be content, but help us to continually look to you, to become more like you, to look to your word, to know what you expect of us. Lord, help us to be faithful. And Lord, some of us today are already dealing with darkness. There are things going on in our lives that we hate and we wish they weren't a part of what's going on. Lord, I pray right now that you would help us to look forward to the day where the darkness will be turned to light. Father, we look forward to a day where we'll no longer have to suffer. There'll be no more sickness, no more death, no more crying, no pain. There's a day that is coming where sin will no longer have a grip on humanity. Father, I pray that when that day comes, every person in this room would be ready, that we would be among those who are victorious. Father, help us now to simply be the people you called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, you may have let your guard down. You may have let some sin take root. While there is still time, repent. Let's go back to doing the things we're supposed to do. And as we do, God will bless and we'll see his reward. Thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace.